Hello. Welcome to Medical Mums Chat about burnout with Gordon Parker. I'm Beck Lettingham, medical mum, rural generalist and slightly burnt out uh, doctor who's on a mission to find out about burnout and share that with uh, my colleagues and friends who I think we're uh, experiencing the signs of burnout in record um, numbers at the moment given the state of play of our workplaces. Um, so this was a delightful interview. It's the first time I've had the good fortune to meet Professor Gordon Parker. Some of you will already know him well. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of New South Wales, founder of the Black Dog Institute, um, and has just released a book with his co-authors called Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery, amongst other very exciting things in his life, including novelist, reporter, um, science broadcaster for the ABC and playwright. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. Thank you so much for joining us on Medical Mums Chat. Um, and thank you very much for your book. Um, did you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and about your the new book, Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery? Well, I'm Gordon Parker, and I've been a uh, academic psychiatrist at the University of New South Wales forever. And so that, that involves, obviously, research and teaching. Um, over the years, I um, was head of the university department for some 20 years. I was head of the hospital department for about 15 years and then also head of an area mental health service. Um, along the way, I also established the Black Dog Institute, which was probably the um, most important thing I think I've done in my life. And, it's on high uh, rotation on my desktop, that's for sure. <laughs> and and it, was, um, it was a great exercise in uh, developing some... Um, web-based tools that uh, were strikingly successful in terms of their pickup against all expectations. And in addition to being a, a, a psychiatrist, I've also been interested as a um, uh, creative writing over the years. So I had my first book of fiction published in 1966 and 50 years later I had my second book. And uh, I've worked as an ABC journalist, wrote for uh, Mavis Bramston and other other shows and um, done various other <coughs> um, media things. At the moment, I'm trying to finish a play looking at Winston Churchill and the Darnell's campaign and arguing that Churchill's bipolar disorder played a part. So it's been a rich, rich, rich um, career history, I think. Oh, wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad I asked that question. I, did, I didn't know all of that. That's great. I am... Um... I'm, I've finished the draft of my first fiction novel and ah, I'm about to start good. editing it. So, um, right. yeah, that's great. Yeah. So why did you write a book about burnout? Um, probably about three or four years ago, I was starting to experience burnout symptoms and I actually didn't know what they were. I didn't know whether it was early dementia or depression or something or else and uh, so I read around a little bit and I realized it was burnout and when I started looking at burnout um, then my usual um, research model came into play 
um, how is burnout defined? Um, that is, how is it modelled? Could it be modelled better? Could it be measured better? And then how could we go about improving its management? So as soon as I realised what I had, I actually sparked up a bit and uh, <laughs> and moved on to um, find it a quite distracting activity. And I spent 2020 basically with my colleagues writing the book on burnout, which went away a long way to sort of helping deal with my own burnout symptoms. Well, again, there's some uh, some something I identify with because that's kind of why I'm doing this. I'm doing a probably um, a series of three podcasts with interviews with medical mums experiencing different levels of burnout or have have in the yep. past and have recovered. Because I I, I too have just um, uh, stopped. Uh, my ability to bounce back has become um, has went gone missing. <laughs> so I've right. I think I've yeah. experienced a lot of episodes of burnout but I've always been able to bounce back and uh yeah. and I just haven't haven't been able to as much which I I kind of I've identified with a lot reading the book um yeah. one thing that I one thing that's early on in the book is the definitions of burnout over the over the years and over the ages um and and you're kind of offering a new more complete mm. definition I did mm. notice that in the past um the definitions were very compartmentalised, and I wondered what you thought about gender um, in in the older definitions because it it had a much more kind of um, male. Um, I think males are better at compartmentalising than females, and so the, right. they, those um, older definitions didn't resonate with me because I don't see my life in different buckets as clearly as some of my, maybe some males do. I'm not sure. Mm. <clears throat> well, the the definition of burnout that has dominated the field for 40 years is essentially three symptoms. Firstly, to feel exhausted. Secondly, a loss of empathy, or it was originally described as depersonalization. And thirdly, predictably compromised work performance. Um, that then has led to the World Health Organization, ICD-11, definition of burnout. Just this triadic set of symptoms. And we think it's actually quite limited. Mm. Um, so our research confirmed exhaustion. Um, it went and extended the concept of loss of empathy because loss of empathy sounds a bit like um, something you're not going to feel particularly proud of, a mm. <laughs> bit of a character flaw. Um, and, and particularly in regard to the healthcare professions where it's sometimes been called compassion fatigue. But what we found in our research was a much broader domain where there was just a loss of joy to be, a loss of general pleasure in life. Uh, and people couldn't spark up in anything. The work didn't spark them up. Mixing with friends didn't spark them up. They just tended to become more insular. So a much broader construct. Thirdly, we found a distinct cognitive impairment domain where basically people say, I have difficulty now remembering things as well as I used to. And I now tend to speed, read or superficially read rather than take anything in depth. And that's a really interesting construct. And if you look at the ancient descriptions of burnout and in the old days, meaning virtually 2000 years ago, 
uh, burnout was uh, called achedia, and it was one of the so-called eight cardinal sins before it got joined with the depression to create the seven cardinal sins. But when the monks were affected with achedia in the old days, they'd wake up one day saying the sky is no longer blue, the sun isn't shining, I'm getting no pleasure in life, I've lost my faith in God. They also describe striking cognitive impairment. And when we look at the biology of what happens in burnout, then that makes makes total sense. And then after that um, come a number of other constructs. So particularly sleep disturbance. Mm. So even though people are exhausted, they'll generally say they've got insomnia. And then a whole tale of, um, as we'd expect, psychological concomitants, so anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms. However, we, we argue that burnout is definitely not depression, mm. that depression can accompany burnout. So our, our definition is broader in capturing more constructs and it's also broader in another way because the key researchers um, who, as I say, have dominated the field for 40 years and have produced a measure called the Maslick Burnout Inventory or the MBI, which just measures, measures those three constructs, have also argued that burnout is all about the workplace and the stress it imposes and, and the individual doesn't bring anything to the table. And what we found in our research is that there is a strong personality driver to burnout. And basically burnout is much more likely to be experienced by good people. Mm. And by that I mean reliable, dutiful, conscientious people. And it sort of makes sense because they're going to stay longer at work. They're going to worry more about doing the right thing that are going to let down people. So they're, they're constantly trying to do their best. And that goes a long way to, I think, explaining why burnout is represented in the caring professions, doctors and nurses and teachers, um, but also in vets. Uh, the, the figures in vets are very, very high. And also in the clergy. The clergy may actually um, beat doctors in terms of the prevalence rates of burnout. And it also explains why, um, according to a friend of mine, when I was playing golf with him and I was giving him an overview of the personality style, he said, oh, Gordon, that explains why sociopaths never develop burnout. Mm. About it, it does make sense, doesn't it? So our model is the old-fashioned psychological, psychiatric model for most conditions, a diathesis stress model. So certainly per certain personality styles... Uh, particularly perfectionism, but type A personality will also contribute. Uh, anxious worrying will personality style will make a contribution. And then the workplace factors then drive the symptom set. So ours, I would suggest, is a, is a much richer model. Oh, I, I agree. And I, I, um, I really do think people should read it um, because I felt... Uh, I, I've never really identified with some aspects of burnout, lack of empathy being one of them because it's something that I hold dear to me and so it's yes. the last thing affected. Um, but Yes, if I, could just, if I could just interrupt you there. With my mild burnout symptoms, I actually didn't have loss of empathy for patients. Yeah. I actually thought I was more empathic because I was now, in a sense, experiencing psychological symptoms and seeing their world. Mm. But socially... 
I became a little bit more insular. Mm. And I, so I, I think it goes more with that joy to V concept rather than loss of empathy. Mm. And I also, I don't really identify as a perfectionist, a perfectionist, but when you described the work, the dutiful worker, yeah. I am a perfectionist in the way that I approach my work. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a chaotic uh, kind of individual. So perfectionism doesn't really ring true to me. But when in that fuller description of the person who wants to do the right thing and turn up and be reliable, mm. that I could identify with. And I think that, um, you know, I could really see myself in the words in the book. So I think that was, I mean, validation is really helpful when you're suffering whatever yeah. it is you're suffering. So, um, so not only do we have in the book an appendix looking, uh, measuring the um, work components that can contribute to burnout, we also have a perfectionism measure as well as the actual measure of burnout. So the appendices try to um, allow the reader to see whether they can uh, construct a matrix for themselves, yeah. Mm. And I think the other thing that this book does really well, you start off with three personal stories, and I think the one that the medical mums are most likely going to um, really connect with is Anne-Marie Rice, who's a lawyer. Yep. Um, yep. And uh, and is, do you mind if I read a, a phrase, a bit out of her story? You're delighted. So um, this really resonated with me and I think will with the medical mum. So just for a bit of context, um, medical mums has been a phenomenon for about 10 years. Uh, oh, no, 12 years, actually. So I realised that when I was a junior doctor and having a family, that it was two very stressful things coinciding and... Um, mm. And not many people in my world knew knew what that was like. I was the only doctor I knew, and I was the mm. first of my friends to have children. So I started an online support group, which I, mm. reading your book, I really hope is somewhat of a protective factor for burnout because we have this, you know, network that we can all yes. identify mm. with each other. But I think reading this, I was nodding a lot. Um, and this is from Anne Marie Rice in your book. For me, the most acute stress was not associated with either work or parenting per se. It was the collision of those two parallel universes. When I came home, still palpably riled from the day and the kids stood back watchfully and did not run into my arms, when I had to compose technical correspondence from the side of the playground, making sure no one fell from anything, or when I had to engage the electronic babysitter again so that I could take a call that I convinced myself could not possibly wait one more day or be surrounded by sounds that resembled something as audacious and unprofessional as life outside the office. I was never not working. Weekends presented delicious opportunities for catching up on work. <laughs> and I just think, yeah. you know, I, I just, th and then a little bit later in the, in the book, you talk about the second shift that, you know, yep. women yep. come home to yep. the next job. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, people have helpfully told me over the years, turn your phone off, you know, take a... Yep. And I'm a single parent, which uh, right. is another risk factor. Um, I can't. Yep. I'm 24-7 on call for my children. And I will be until they are, you know, fully functional adults. And even yep. then, to some degree, I'm sure they'll want to call their mum if something erupts in their life. But uh, while, they're, while their frontal lobe's not developed, I still <laughs> need that yep. phone on at all times, even if I'm not on yep. the roster. So I think and of course, there's the other um, component that can occur that we have the sandwich uh, generation where uh, the woman has not only got her daytime job and looking after her children, but she's also potentially looking after elderly relatives who are infirm or disabled. Mm. So she's got three drivers, and 
Um, it goes a long way to explaining why women are more likely than men to get burnout. The other, the other aspect is looking at the science and the work in terms of positive psychology. We were encouraged to the view that with labor-saving devices, levels of well-being would go up. <clears throat> but in every country in the world, uh, well-being levels have essentially stayed the same for several decades for men, but they've declined for women. And the general suggestion is because women are required to have these two jobs, not just the one, the one work, formal work job. Mm. And everyone I've interviewed from the medical mums who will, you know, put, put together in the podcast, um, I think as doctors, we all recognise some of the features of depression. So you've gone into that in the book a lot where everyone has described some self-scanning for, is this depression? And I don't think it is, you know. Mm. But is it? And so uh, I think we've been able to um, exclude it, but are then left going, well, it kind of looks like depression, but it's not because I can still get excited about that thing on Tuesdays that I really enjoy and I can still get up and have a shower and I'm still functional um, or whatever it is that we tell ourselves. But we've, I think uh, every single person I've spoken to has recognised that, that it's not depression and really thought about that depression versus burnout that you explore quite, um, you know, uh, what's the word, fully in the book? Well, well it's, a, it's a huge issue uh, because when you look at the research, um, slightly more than half of the research studies argue that burnout is synonymous with depression. Um, and as I mentioned in the old days, there was the eighth cardinal sin, achedia, which was burnout. And it was joined with tristitia, which was depression, to bring the eight cardinal deadly sins down to seven. So it, there was in a view then that the two were identical. Um, our research was really quite firm in, in excluding uh, depression as uh, synonymous with, um, with, with burnout. There's no doubt, however, that um, People with burnout have, as I say, this common tale of symptoms, including depressive symptoms, but the two are different. Uh, although I've been a psychiatrist and focused on mood disorders, there's no doubt that I missed people with burnout and and um, would have given them a diagnosis of depression on occasions. I put it, the story in the book, but one of the most illuminating um, vignettes for me was when I saw a woman who had given birth to two intellectually disabled children and they would scream from birth for 20 hours a day. Her husband had left her. She was living in a country property by herself with these children and she was referred to me for treatment for her clinical depression. She didn't have depression at all and I knew it wasn't depression but I actually didn't know what it was. Mm. And I ended up complimenting her <laughs> and suggesting you know, obvious things like circuit breakers. But I actually didn't know the word to describe it. And it, the word was burnout. Mm. So I've certainly missed uh, making diagnosis of burnout. And I'm certain that I've had patients with burnout that I've, you know, believed had depression. So the, the writing of the book was also a good exercise from my point of view to sharpen my thinking up. And then we have a chapter that spends quite a lot of time differentiating the two. Mm. 
The other thing that I think is interesting is thinking about, um, so the, the way that I had thought about it previously was acute versus chronic, but uh, also you talk about burnt out versus burning out. Um, so everyone who I've spoken to so far, uh, including myself, reflects on our junior doctor years that are really hard. And so I reflect on them and think, why is this so hard when I used to do 14-hour shifts and come home to a breastfeeding baby and have four hours sleep and get up and go to work the next day, you know? And, um, and other people talk about the fact that when they felt burnt out as a junior doctor, they were on a rotation that was going to end and there was a fresh new start in 10 weeks or six months and that when you get to your fellowed career, there's no rotations anymore and that maybe as hard as it was, that rotating... Um, this is going to end. Uh, psychology was actually quite helpful when you felt burnt out because something new was always coming. So it's really interesting. But I now think of those times as my in my junior doctor years as um, as damaging my resilience rather than being the benchmark, yeah. which is what I've held them up as. But I was resilient then. I should be able to do it because I could do it back then. <laughs> Um, yes, I think the distinction between burning out and being burned out is extremely important, but we don't know the key points of distinction. But I would um, bring Hooke's law into play, and um, I vaguely remember that rule of physics from school that if you stretch something elastic within its elastic range, it would bounce back. But if you stretch it belong, beyond its elasticity, it wouldn't bounce back. Mm. And so I see burning out as like the elastic spring back potential and burnt out then it's a more finite state so we know that um, burning out symptoms are experienced by you know year 11 and year 12 kids let alone university medical students but if they have a decent holiday a decent break they'll come back fairly fast when i started writing the book and we collected vignettes from a large number of people i actually thought burnt out would be a finite state and very hard to come back from but in fact the vignettes that we got were far more optimistic than that but people didn't get out of that finite burnt out state simply by taking a holiday or exercising more or practicing mindfulness they nearly always had to rejig their life so one of the three opening vignettes in the book is from an ENT surgeon from the United States and he described having to move his medical practice and doing a whole series of things. And he came back completely. So um, how we differentiate between burning out and burnt out, I think, remains to be established. Um, <clears throat> but as I say, I think Hooke's Law is a reasonable analogy mm. for the concept of elasticity. Have you got your elasticity still present? You're probably burning out. Mm. As it gone, you're probably burnt out. And the fact that I could do 14-hour shifts and look after two babies and, you know, wear my cape 10 years ago probably actually stretched my elastic band rather than being a benchmark of something I should try and achieve again, I think. You know, like I've got to stop this uh, um, yeah. comparison to my... I'm also older with, you know, healthy shoes and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> tragedies that I've, I've you know accumulated as I age yeah. as well so yeah. um but yeah. it's it's an interesting I think that's that little bit of uh medical personality as well um thinking that you can do so much and that somehow you know be superhuman well that's right I mean if if I had ever said to uh somebody who look at my junior year I was 
uh, residency, I was averaging 120 hours a day, then the response from everyone around me, only 120, Gordon, we did 130, we mm. did 150. It was almost competitive, wasn't it? Mm. To talk about, you know, the long hours and the arduous circumstances. But I think the fact the factors have changed in medicine. If you look at the, the factor most commonly nominated by doctors as driving burnout, it's the electronic medical record. And that makes total sense to me. So it's not just the hours that we put in as doctors that contribute and drive burnout. It's the nuances of our workplace. Mm. And I, I mean, I know in the public sector, um, when a psychiatrist sees somebody for 30 minutes, they're actually spending 20 minutes on their computer, putting in the data that are required. And of course, not looking at the patient. Mm. <laughs> when I was last in the public sector, which is really only just over a little over a year ago, I was required to do 85 mandatory training programs uh, in one of those years. So medicine has changed where we're doing far more administrative things rather than the hands-on medicine. And I think they are big factors um, that go way beyond just the long hours that we put in. Mm. If and you're doing long hours and you're loving it, I mean, it's not going to be necessarily a big driver. Mm. I think it's also interesting to look at the workplace factors because we're, we have a choice between the private and the public sector in medicine, but each come with their burnout um, you know, uh, contributors like the the private sector you don't necessarily get leave and you might be a bit lonely which is how I found being in private I was I was socially isolated I didn't the receptionists I took their ear off every time I didn't a patient didn't turn up because I so I I actually need that team and I'm, and the public sector yep. suits me better um, but you can you've got autonomy in private and you lose that in public so it's that weighing up of the things you know sure. which factors matter more to you so I'm, I'm kind of terming this stage of my life as a life renovation to try and fix my burnout which is helping because it's um which is another thing that you talk about in the book rather than treatment it's self-management because each person's burnout will look different and each person's treatment plan will look different depending on their personality and their particular circumstances won't it yeah and i mean just to take uh, an extreme example um if you're in a workplace where you're, you do a damn good job and you're highly, highly valued and you're burning out uh, and you go to your boss and say, what's happening? Your boss will almost certainly say, well, look, take some time off, pace yourself, blah, 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 blah. But if you're in a toxic work environment with a tyrannical boss who now sees you as a weak link and starts to bully you more, then in fact, it's a totally different scenario. And I get a lot of... Um, patients from Canberra, public servants who are caught up in that. And because they're reliable and conscientious, they feel they've got to stay there and, you know, everything will become tickety-boo and then they go through HR, but HR is on the side of the employer when, in fact, they should be getting out of the game. Um, so I think there are other issues that come into, uh, into the management issues, into, into the management plan. And... The management plan is highly contingent as to whether you're in a healthy workplace where they are going to be attentive to your needs or whether in fact it's toxic, toxic and further demeaning and, and uh, burnout uh, driven. Well, that's really interesting because I, I have always been um, 
quite um, uh, uncomplimentary about the forces because I think they trick people into staying. And since I was a young person, I've said, you know, they get low interest loans and they've got all these hooks to keep people there. And mm. when I was listening to you on the Life Matters podcast, I thought, oh, so does medicine. It's just different. Yeah. They trick people yeah. into thinking you can't leave. And <laughs> if only we always knew we could leave, it's some of those, um, uh, some of that real oppression of the job might be better, even if you didn't choose to leave, just knowing you can. But yeah. um, it's, a, um, it's a funny one people, with medicine because people just don't think they can leave. No, that's right. And, and most people with burnout don't see that as an option because, as I said before, they're, they're reliable and they're dutiful. They mm -hmm. feel that they're letting the side down. But, but there's one vignette in the book uh, from a, um, a senior doctor and he exposes the games and the uh, nasty plays that have not only contributed to his burnout, but keep it persisting. So um, he can never uh, get holiday leave. Mm. Um, if there's a Christmas roster, he's always on it. <laughs> um, democracy does not rule. Um, the head of the department plays favorites. And yet this guy has hung in there because he's loyal and doesn't want to leave the hospital. Uh, but he's just going further down and down as a consequence of it. So uh, the toxic work environment is, as I say, commonly um, a reflection of processes like mandatory training or the electronic medical record, but it can also be interpersonally driven as well. Mm. And I mean, it's an interesting year to have written the book because of course we're our workplace is forever changed by COVID-19. Yep. Um, and I think that I've watched my colleagues around me. We had an early outbreak in my town um, when Northern Italy was, you know, in the news. Um, and we luckily got on top of it, which I think was just because we live outside and don't have many people. <laughs> I live in yep. far, in north, northwestern Australia. Um, but okay. I've just watched people's exhaustion levels creeping up and up because you know nothing is normal about the way we're conducting business since that um, no. and it's and it's added a level of frustrating you yep. know hmm. well homeschooling is one of the big factors and if you've got a recalcitrant kid um, uh, that's that's a huge pressure for burnout but also uh, there's a literature building on you know, people who are working the whole day on Zoom and equivalents and finding that that's a big driver of burnout because they're having to maintain eye contact far more than they would in an in vivo situation. The rates of cosmetic procedures have gone up 30% in the last 18 months in America because people feel they have to present themselves <laughs> in a different way. So the electronic um, uh, implements that we have in place at the moment are also running the risk of adding to the burnout uh, prevalence. Mm. I wanted to thank you for one more thing, and that is I wanted to thank you for this book addressing employers as well um, because it really puts on the table that, you know, that it's not a failing of, of the person and that there's all of those factors at play. Um, and I wanted to finish off with a note of optimism, which you've already alluded to, which is, uh, and it's the same with the people I've spoken to, that no matter how bad it is, and some people have this really, you know, um, incredibly dramatic presentation of burnout yep. where their body just gives out on them, um, yep. there seems to be a path to recovery for most people, you know, like, and, yep. and 
a, a lovely life that follows having learnt the lessons that the burnouts taught them. Yes, well, so the, the final vignette is from a very um, successful professional woman who um, developed burnout over a relatively short period, but then she just collapsed. And when she got to hospital, her blood pressure, I think, was 60 over 40, severe tachycardia, um, cortisol levels were virtually zilch. And um, she was in hospital for two weeks and none of the ED doctors were able to make the diagnosis because they hadn't seen such a severe physical expression of burnout. And we have a number of vignettes, equivalent ones. I mean, uh, Arianna Huffington, her book on Thrive, the woman who set up Huffington Post, she actually collapsed to the ground hitting her head. Um, there's another book written recently by a Sydney doctor called Emotional Female, mm. and she describes becoming incontinent. So a lot of physical dramatic symptoms, but going back to that final vignette of grace, despite the severity where she was absolutely bedridden for an extended period of time, she just rejigged her life and she's now back uh, and genuinely uh, back to where she was uh, as a fully successful professional. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. And um, I guess... If you could give, if if there's some medical mums and others, because this will be in the public domain, um, listening who think, oh, yep, yeah, I, I definitely think I'm burning out, or um, which is the most common state to be in, isn't it? The burning yep, out rather yep, than. Yep. Uh, what would be your top three tips to to start? Um, you know, but it's hard to hard to hard to assemble them, but we did a study of over 1,200 people when we asked them what worked best for them and the highest nominated factor was talking to somebody so obviously the suggestion is ventilation get it out there after that came exercise um, and then after that came some good de-stressing strategy like mindfulness or meditation so they're the de-stressing strategies but in addition i think people need to look at their work and the, the nuances of their work and say, what are the factors that are driving me? Is it the hours? Is it the corporate culture? Is it the toxic boss? Whatever. And then work out what they need to do about that. And then the third component is to say, well, how's my personality style contributing? And if I'm a dutiful, totally reliable, perfectionistic person, what do I need to do about that? Because um, in a sense, I mean, I used to work to the old aphorism that you don't treat perfectionists, you employ them because they're so good, so reliable. But it comes at a huge price. It's hard to change, but I think you can do certain things. You mentioned earlier about turning your phone off at a certain time of the day, that maybe that's impossible. But is it always impossible? Mm. Are there not strategies for getting around all of that? And at the end of the book, we have a whole series of resources, a series of apps and other um, website um, applications where uh, people can apply certain tools that will help de-stress, change perfectionism, and so on and so forth. So I think it has to be a three-pronged approach. Look at the work environment, see what can be changed. Adopt de-stressing strategies and consider how your personality should be modulated you don't lose your personality, but you tweak it to take away the dry, the underlying predisposing factor. And almost everyone I've interviewed so far 
um, had these really uh, fiercely held beliefs that they must do X, Y, Z. They must work this much, or they can't possibly work less, or they. And um, I wonder if those two words, can't and must, probably should be tossed out. And if you come across them, you should really interrogate those because uh, we seem to just accept our own. Um, and they often go along with, no one else could possibly understand why I must or I can't. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're much more likely to be used by people who are reliable, dutiful and perfectionistic. Mm. So, they... uh, because they, Because those, those characteristics go along with having a binary view of the world. You either go left or right. Mm. Um, it's either yes or no, rather than the more go with the flow type person who says, well, there's always a third option. Yeah. <laughs> or more. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for um, coming on to our podcast. I, I am sure that both this podcast and mostly this book will help a lot of, um, of medical mums and, pe- and beyond because this is a phenomenon that's experienced in lots of different areas. But thank you so much for coming and chatting to the medical mums today. Well, well, thank you, Beck. It's been a lovely interview and uh, you've asked some very intelligent and salient questions. And uh, I very much appreciated the opportunity to uh, talk about the topic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, Beck. Cheers, Anne. Cheers.